Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss politics, business, culture. This is Donya Keating. I'm your host. I'm coming to you live from the Seattle area. It's about 1 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday, August 9th. 602-753-1970 is where listeners can call in to uh, talk to us live. You'll get patched in for on-air questions or comments. And if you want us to know that you're ready to speak, just press 1 on your keypad. There's also a chat option. Um, you can do that in private back and forth with um, Christine, and then any of your questions and comments will come my way if they're not already being addressed. So today, we're speaking with our fifth candidate for city council on Bainbridge Island, Kevin Federley. He is from the North Ward. He's running against Joe Dietz. We've already talked to uh, Joe and also Rain Roth and Rasham Nassar from the Central Ward. We also talked to Matt Tierman from the South Ward. So you can check all of those out on our website or Facebook page. And I think it's been a worthwhile investment of my time, and I'd do it again. Not many rules about the show. Obviously, a straight talk, and that's what we do, um, except for the obvious stuff. Opposing opinions are fine. Toe-to-toe is fine. You know, a little bit of uh, you know sharp elbows are fine. Crazy. It's just going to get airlocked. So let's move on to the switchboard and see who's out there. Good afternoon, Kevin. Is this you? Yes, it is. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for coming. Let's see who else is out of here. Hello. Who do I have out here? This is Charles. I'm here, too. Oh, awesome. Great. So let's get right to it. Kevin, uh, tell us about yourself. Well, uh, I, uh, my wife and I moved uh, to Bainbridge about uh, 18 years ago, and uh, uh, I'd lived previously in Portland, Oregon, in uh, uh, northwest uh, uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, I'm an electrical engineer, so I... Uh, tend to view the world through uh, um, projects, objectives, tasks, uh, get things done. I'm not, not so much process-oriented. I'm not, not interested in just uh, watching the water roll by. I want to do a few specific things and try to do them well. Okay, fair enough. Charles, any thoughts from you about uh, your background? Um, I'm an IT consultant and uh, run the Westbound Technology Association. We also run the Westbound Coder Dojo. Uh, we've been very active, I guess, in a lot of uh, initiatives, public-private partnerships. So I tend to take a, uh, a slant on things that looks at what can we do to leverage technology and work efficiently. And, uh, you know, I want to inspire our dialogue to be more about what are our pros and cons around issues and so that we can assess and make trade-offs. That's what I'm kind of looking for. So that's my background. Great. And I'm more of a leadership uh, management consultant. Uh, I also do public policy, and I think that the process can be important, but I also um, am very much about getting things done. So, you know, this show is kind of a project that we decided to 
to uh, start about three years ago, and it was really more about hearing from other people and their stories and their thoughts. It wasn't so much about, hey, you know, let's talk about our company. Kevin, what made you decide to run for city council? Uh, it was, it's really the the thrust by Island Power to uh, take over the utility. Um, the Island Power Group had some, you know, solid ideas. They they wanted to move uh, our electric consumption off of uh, fossil fuel. They wanted to improve the reliability, but the approach of buying out our, our electric, electricity grid was going to cost just vastly too much money and wasn't, wasn't feasible. So that kind of triggered me into saying, well, what, could we, what other ways could we achieve those goals without uh, you know, spending $150 million? And that, that kind of got me going. And, uh, and then as I dug into it, Boy, there are a lot of other issues have cropped up that are uh, uh, important as well. Okay. So, yeah, you brought up the island power issue, and I think it, it's, it's something that had come up before, you know, having a municipal electric utility um, had come up years before with the uh, community. And I, I think also for many of us, it was it was really sort of uh, stepping up and saying, hey, you know, don't try to, to mischaracterize the community as people that aren't interested in environmental stewardship or in clean energy. We are, just because we don't support your project, because it's, first of all, it's not doing what it purports to do, and second of all, it is prohibitive, and it's just more of a, you know, a feel-good thing. It's not something that's really going to get us. It's not going to move the needle. It's not going to be net renewable uh, energy. So, um, But thank you for stepping up. Uh, serving is, is something that a lot of us uh, don't do, even though we like to complain. So on the issues, your website lists uh, several of them. So we'll just go through them um, and then try to okay. cover as many as we can in the time that we have. You list growth, um, aquifer, renewable energy, improved grid reliability, pedestrian and bike paths, affordable housing, Highway 305, and transit, and then also the police station. So for anybody that's out there listening, if we don't cover everything, he sense, you know, Kevin has fleshed out his, his website, and so he's starting to discuss those issues, and so that would be another way to keep in touch with him and, and find out what he's thinking about some of these things. Um, many of these uh, issues that you're actually talking about, Kevin, are similar to some of the other ones uh, that the candidates have been bringing up and addressing, but mm -hmm. let's take the most recent one that's in the news, which is the, the police station. That just came up yesterday. Okay. Um, Bainbridge, yeah, the Bainbridge Review just published an article, and of course, as, if, if anybody's keeping track of that, yesterday the city council, um, they unanimously approved proceeding with a plan to build a two-story public safety building. And it's not only going to contain the police station, but it's also going to have a municipal court, uh, and it's going to be near the fire station that's over there on New Brooklyn, New Brooklyn Road, I believe it is. Okay. Um, back, back in 2014, the price that we started talking about was $10.1 million. Um, in November of 2015, there was a bond request that failed for $15 million, and I think that failed to pass for a variety of reasons. Some people didn't like the cost, some didn't like the location, contamination, remediation, whatever. Anyway, the new mm -hmm. price tag is $28.4 million, uh, which does not include the cost of the land, which is expected to be millions more, and that cost is 149% more than what was um, quoted back in 2014. So, on your website, you made some comments about the station and what you think about it. So, why don't you uh, go ahead and share some of those? Uh, well, I, 28 is not going to pass uh, by the voters, and so we're going to have to cut this baby down to something that that's going to, you know, it's going to fly. Um, and let's say what's going to fly is maybe 16 million or 18 million. 
then you have to cut down the, the size of the structure. You have to cut down the uh, architectural goodies. Uh, maybe even the, the, the quality level has to be cut back. There has to be, has to be more sheetrock than you would like. Um, but uh, you have to fit it back into, the, into a budget that can be, actually be sold to the public. And I, I don't think uh, 28 would fly if that doesn't include the land, because uh, I, I would guess the land is going to be four million more and uh, um, you know, 32 million for, for a police station is just exorbitant. You know, it's interesting because back when they were building uh, Wilkes, I mean, it's a great school, but I remember um, at the time a lot of the, um, the administrators that we were talking to, they were saying it almost as a point of pride that it was the second, if not the most expensive elementary school built in the state. And so, I mean, I think it's great to have an indoor-outdoor space for kids that are, you know, that's conducive to their learning um, potential. But I also think that sometimes we get a little bit uh, enamored with, you know, ours is the biggest and the best and the most expensive. So um, I looked very briefly at the plans um, or one of the drawings today, and it showed this, you know, double-decker entry. And so the first thing I thought of uh, was, you know, how do you use that space more efficiently? And that if you're not going to use it and it's not going to have office space or something else, then it's just pretty. I mean, how do you cut that down? So those are some of the things that you're talking about in terms of uh, working towards a sensible, more cost-effective replacement. Well, the the police station proper, I don't really view it as a, a public space. It, you know, if we're lucky, we, we will never see the inside of it. So, uh, uh, of course, the court <laughs> is public space, but... Uh, it's an office space. It's, it's a, an instruction space for the for our uh, employees. It's uh, uh, and I don't view it as as needing the accoutrements that are inviting uh, for the public. You know, do the most simple thing first. Let's let's get a building that's earthquake safe that provides uh, office space for the crew to work in. And if we you know later in the future when there's more money, then you can add on you know a nicer entry or something like that. Just don't try to shoot for the moon all at once right now. Somebody made a comment that um, they don't think that this particular plan is going to end up going to the public in the same way that the other bond did. Um, I, I don't think that they could actually do that, but given the price tag especially. So it would make sense to me that they would engage the public on this. Charles, do you have any comments since you started the thread on Facebook about this, this uh, station? First off, First off, I think they can go around the voters. They can use what's called councilmatic bonds, which means it's a bond in, uh, issued by the council. I don't know what the upper uh, limit on those amounts are. I don't even know if there is a limit, but obviously it's going to upset a lot of people if they just start spending money. Um, I think the thing that kind of – see, I, I don't know all the discussions that have gone in behind the scenes. I know that when we – talked about the initial police station i think the thing that rubbed people a lot of ways was right before they were deciding to buy the property it was kind of like disclosed at the last minute some of the uh, environmental issues with that property and it, it didn't seem like it was there was no kind of cost sharing like you know usually the property owner has to pay or at least be hit with a tag for part of the remediation of the property so that was a problem for i think a lot of people in that they didn't um kind of factor that in now with this new one it seems like wow the price tag just kind of goes up and up and then you look at this architectural thing and it's like oh that's beautiful but you know are, are we paying for you know something more extravagant than we need 
Um, maybe so. I, I know they have a, a. Is there dual use or anything there? I mean, I mean, there's a court. There's the police. The, the police station. Are we intending that this thing be multi-purpose in some other way? I don't. I don't know that. But I guess it all gets back to what is the decision-making process? And what I saw when they were passing the dock um, is that city council didn't really have a chance to evaluate the proposals. They just kind of like. Here's the proposal. Here's the bid. They came in at two million dollars. You know, you got to give a three hundred thousand dollar contingency. Say yes or no. And if you say no, we'll miss our building window. It was like there was no ability to choose between option A, B, and C, and you know, try to get the cost down. So I think that's part of uh, the discomfort. And Kevin, you know, please enlighten. I think that's part of. I think it goes back to governance. And who runs things? Is it the city council and the designers? Are they putting those things forward and what they want, and then they cut back, or are we over and are, are we overreaching, or is there a way to get it get it done cheaper than as expected? Well, I, it was brought up earlier the you know the quality level of the Wilkes School. Uh, we we got a tour of that facility and it was um, beautiful, but. It was built of materials that wasn't going to withstand little kids. Uh, it wasn't going to withstand wear and tear of uh, little kids running around, and that's unfortunate because it cost so much money. I, it, it's a mindset. Uh, the mindset is, do we start with the most extravagant and then chop our way down to something that we can afford, or do we uh, build something we you know, start at the bottom, get something minimal, and then add as you have more budget? I think the other and part of that that I see is when we talk about the, the well the fire the fire department the fire station that we just tore down really isn't that old. I mean I I've lived in different parts of the country and the world where there are fire stations that are a lot older. Um and so this is one that basically was torn down because it wasn't seismically sound and so it kind of begs the question. It's like okay, well we're we're living on fault lines and tectonic plates and you know obviously places like California we know where we are. So when we're building these things, these things should actually be factored in so that you're not tearing down a building every 40 or 30 years and then saying that it's not sufficient. Um so let's move into renewable energy and improve grid reliability. They kind of go hand in hand. Um and you talked about how Many nations, I mean, we know this, we, we're, they're planning to increase their coal consumption by 46%. And by the way, where'd you get that figure? Uh, a New York Times article uh, outlined uh, uh, while China is cutting back their consumption or their growth in, in the consumption of coal, their companies are building coal plants all over the world, Pakistan uh, um, and all over Africa. And that that new uh, those new facilities more than more than counterbalanced anything that was being cut back in China, and that led me off to uh, uh, a site that accumulated all the uh, proposed starts of new coal-fired power plants around the world, and it was 800 gigawatts. That is 500 yeah. times the output power of coal strip, and uh, mm -hmm. a, a you know units three and four at coal strip. You know, so so we're you know we're, we're we want to deal with uh, our own consumption of, of fossil fuel, but the world is continuing to add a huge amount um, to the total, and and uh, you know it's it's just scary. Uh, I I do believe that carbon uh, dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and I wanted to work on 
trying to uh, reduce our own fossil consumption. And what I came away with, uh, you know, listening to the whole island power uh, deal and talking with the people at PSE, you know, we can just, we as Bainbridge Island could contract with PSE to buy renewable power directly. Um, and the way that would work is we, we would enter into a contract with PSC, say a 15-year contract, to buy 100% renewable. Today, we, we consume 65% fossil uh, fuel, get natural gas and coal, but we'd, we could shift to 100% um, renewable. What they would do is they would go out and find suppliers. Uh, there's a solar facility that's being grown in, at Hanford. Uh, they're building their own wind, wind farms. Uh, they buy hydro from BC, they buy hydro from uh, um, uh, Indian tribes. And um, anyway, they will go out, they, with our contract in hand, they can go out and buy uh, uh, power from these vendors. They act as a middleman, uh, and we could have 100% uh, green power, if you will, um, in short order. Um, it, there isn't a direct mechanism to do this through the state, the state is going to be the biggest barrier to, to, to do it. Um, so we would probably have to put this proposal before the voters. And so when you're talking about I mean, community purchase agreements or power purchase agreements, mm -hmm. you know, we've talked on some of the other shows about Green Direct and Solar Choice, and I just want to kind of make a distinction there for people that are listening. Green Direct is the program that actually goes to a certain size of user. I mean, you're, you're talking about people that use more than 10 million kilowatt hours per year, so that's usually going to be large corporate customers, municipal customers, et cetera. And as far as I am aware, we're no longer able as a city, the city is no longer able to opt into that at this point no, in time. As so a that's city, not what you're talking but I mean, about. Right. I'm talking about us as a community, us exactly. the individual consumers. We consume 22 megawatts continuous uh, uh, power. 14 and a half megawatts of that is, is fossil uh, fuel. Um, and so for a cost of approximately, a premium of approximately 2%, we could shift over to all renewable, not 10%. And of course, you know. 2%. But, mm -hmm. but you know, I mean, several members of the community, including some of the island power people, they don't believe that those offerings are sufficient. They call it greenwashing. And so, you know, that's why we have these discussions that are underway about, you know, and then, of course, the city joining, like, the mayors for, you know, clean energy and all these other types of initiatives for the parent, you know, Paris Climate Agreement and so forth to really put pressure on PSC to generate, you know, net renewable energy um, opportunities and projects um, and then using their progress and measuring their progress and assessing them from now until their contract for um, renewing the franchise agreement comes up in 2022 and determining, you know, whether or not we're going to continue with them based upon those results. So what are your what are your thoughts about that and, and other opportunities that you see for our community to, to move towards cleaner energy um, if you're elected to the, the city council? Um, so... Uh if we wanted PSC to shut down Coal Strip uh, next week, it would take them, oh, five to seven years to line up uh, replacement uh, uh, plants, probably natural gas-fired, you know, to, to replace them. And certainly, it would take a lot longer to, to build uh, any kind of hydro 
it's near impossible to get permits. Uh, so the conversion over to renewable, it doesn't happen instantaneously. We need, we need to find a way for them to uh, purchase uh, renewable power um, in vast quantity quickly. And to me, the best way to do that is to apply political pressure on our federal government to allow PSC to buy as a tier one customer of the Bonneville Power Administration. That would give them you know, that, access to you know, 50 gigawatts of available hydropower that uh, they, they get to buy from Bonneville now, but only on very short-term contracts. And uh, um, we, you know, if, we wanted, if we want to move quickly, we ought to get them the ability to buy from Bonneville uh, as a long-term customer. And uh, you know, we, we've got enough politicians here that we, can, we could have started applying the pressure. So this ties into a question that I've been asking other candidates because it keeps coming up or it came up in, in one of the Facebook discussions about the criteria that would be proposed to determine whether or not they're fulfilling their obligation to, to, to get cleaner. And one of them was whether or not the city council candidates would support a requirement that PSC drop its current lawsuit against the Department of Ecology over the clean air rule as a precondition of renewing the agreement. And when you start talking about the ability for PSC to go and purchase credits from green gas, um, offsetting programs, that was part of their legal brief, was whether they should be able to do something through out-of-state programs that would allow them to comply with that clean air rule. So um, what would be your thought if this question came before you as a council member? What really um, – okay, that is greenwashing to me, and uh, it's a bit like the Paris Agreement is greenwashing, you know, when the world is still able to build, you know, 800 gigawatts of new coal coal plants. That's all greenwashing. We need to do something that's active and real. And what, what would be real would be, you know, cutting, you know, seven years off the lifetime of, of coal strip three and four and getting them the ability to buy that power instead from Bonneville. Bonneville is stuck right now. They can't sell their, they can't sell their excess power to California anymore because California is generating so much uh, solar. So Bonneville's having to raise their rates to their local local customers and they could use a new customer that would, you know, that consume a gigawatt of, of power and that's PSE. Charles, you seem to have some comments that you want to jump in here and add to this discussion. Yeah. Um, first off, um, I don't know how many coal plants are still going. I mean, there's all sorts of coal plants that run are different uh, stages of construction. And I know that a lot of them have been abandoned. So some of it is projected capacity, something that, you know, has been, you know, whether they permitted it or whether they're planning it. But I also know that worldwide coal plants are under, they're, they're basically free falling in terms of how many of them are going to be constructed. Uh, Kevin, I think you're right in that, you know, we, we can't have an agreement and then turn around and say, well, we're going to build, you know, X gazillion uh, new coal plants. That's kind of crazy. I, I think Trump is, is dumb and walking away from the Paris Accords because while it was mostly voluntary, he, you know, he was afraid of sending a message that, you know, we're going to negotiate anything in the United States and, uh, you know, help others. I think it was just kind of a – I guess we can't argue the national level. We can only talk about, in the end, what can we in Bainbridge Island really do? 
And, you know, trying to buy energy from Bonneville requires us to own our network. And it was the process of getting from an investor-owned utility to that status that is very expensive and stupid, right? You had to do a condemnation, spend millions in, in lawyers to try to get there and buy your network. And then whether or not the city is a great, you know, vehicle to do that, it doesn't even it doesn't make sense now. If we started 100 years ago or 50 years ago, maybe. But now it doesn't make sense in the current environment with where things are going. And you're right. We should be asking questions. What are other alternatives? Because that's, that's the key, I think, that's coming into questions now is what are the alternatives? And when somebody comes to you and says, here's a proposal, I want people to be able to evaluate it on its merits. Uh, one of the problems mm-hmm. I had with the Island Power proposal is that they promised reliability like it was an inherent value of something being by being publicly owned instead of something that is a metric of the physics of your network. When somebody says something like that and continues to continually present false facts or facts that are stilted to give you an inference to make the wrong decision, that's a problem. And we need pushback from people that will say, look, that's not what drives reliability. Reliability, is, as proved by the studies, is trees falling on the wires. You want to improve reliability, you've got to cut the trees back, or you've got to underground lines in some cases. Uh, and there's an investment cost to that. But it's not something that's an automatic byproduct of, of buying your network and going public and, and at the same time promising to reduce costs doesn't make sense if you're going to have to invest a lot of money in your network that you're actually going to reduce costs. It's like saying we're going to save money by building a $100 million police station. No, you're not. It's $100 million. If The more money you spend, the more money you have to take back in fees and taxes and everything else. So, so um, I think that's what we're looking for. Yeah, and we're not going to relitigate Island Power. I mean, uh, the only the only relevance it really has at this point is that there are some people out there trying to resurrect it and trying to put forth candidates that they believe will actually resurrect it if they have enough votes on the city council. So in that sense, then you're correct in bringing up that issue. But going forward, I, I think that Kevin was talking about lobbying the federal government for the opportunity um, so that BPA can actually sell its power directly to, to companies like PSC. Um, Kevin, on your website, you also note that our reliability performance, which is what PSC said in the first place, was due to the lack of redundant transmission routing and also falling trees and branches. Um, And so you talked about implementing a loop, which are... um, Yep. Actually, both of them. I think we we both we rejected both of those in the past. Um, but you're also talking about undergrounding, which is very very expensive. But what's your plan in terms of trying to and timeline and trying to negotiate that or advocate for that and and also financing it? Okay, uh, so PSC uh, does need to create a loop uh, down to the uh, uh, Winslow Station substation from the Merden Station uh, because. Uh, um, uh, we have a tree-shaped uh, transmission structure, and it's, uh, if any one of those legs goes down, uh, Winslow you know, proper goes down for you know, hours or days on end. But if you have a loop uh, that there are multiple legs ending up at the same substation, then they have multiple routes to, to keep the lines going. So to do that, uh, they have to pull more 115,000-volt uh, high-tension lines. I got the feeling that PSE would be willing to underground that structure, not actually have above ground um, uh, utility lines. And, um, and I think that could be done at no cost to the city. You know, they, they allocate a certain amount of capital expenditure for the Bainbridge Island facilities, 
uh, year after year, and um, uh, in they've they've accumulated funds to 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 uh, improve the reliability. Now we need to just get them the you know building permits to go do it. But I, I would be for for the idea of undergrounding that structure, uh, you know, to make the loop and uh, you know improve the primary reliability for Winslow. Now the other undergrounding that that I was referring to on the website was undergrounding our local um, uh, uh, feeder lines to our houses. That that is also expensive, uh, um, but could be done over a multi-year period. Just say some number some percentage of our lines, say 10%, would be undergrounded every year. Uh, currently, 55% of, of the island is um, undergrounded. 45% mm -hmm. remains above ground. And uh, uh, I would say, you know, let's, let's work with P PSC uh, for, on a plan to underground the rest of it over the next 10 years and get it done. As a city council um, candidate, and if you were elected, obviously, I mean, we're talking about ways to alle you know to alleviate our reliability issue, which is being brought up as one of many issues when we were dealing with the island power um, advocacy, you know, the group. Um, but now we're talking about whether or not we even want to renew our franchise agreement with them in 2022. And there is obviously a movement to really focus on, you know, the emissions and the coal and the fracked gas, quote unquote. And I'm wondering how you would balance people that are essentially marching towards trying to get them out of there if they don't meet that standard with getting other parts of this community to approve of an investment of that nature in our infrastructure to alleviate or to, to, to ameliorate our reliability. I mean, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is do you think people really care about the reliability at this point when some people are so vocal in trying to get rid of PSE in the first place by 2022? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I will confess my ignorance. I'm not sure if a franchise agreement relates to the supply of energy to the, to the company. Uh, a franchise agreement relates to, you know, if we have to move a power pole, how do we split the cost with the city? How do we, you know, uh, you know, what is the service level? That kind of thing. It doesn't relate to uh, the integrated power management plan that the the company has to file with the state. That really, you know, all of that really is an issue that has to be driven at the at the uh, state level. You know, th this is a Jay Inslee level problem. I, I don't see how the city can force that upon uh, the wider utility. Um, but uh, interesting. Well, uh, I may be wrong. I, I don't think that I don't think the city can can force that on a utility. Uh, it, the franchise agreements related to specifics about power pole uh, power poles and and how power is routed on the island. Um, and it's if. Do we want reliability or not? If we want it, they have to make some changes to the topology of their network, and we've got to make that happen. Uh, I, I don't, I don't see how that could be negative. Uh, you know, to, to pull buried lines to uh, improve the looping and uh, um, improve the uptime. Um, so now, to, to be proactive about about, uh, you know. Green power. Uh, I, I specifically am saying we we ought to uh, work with PSE 
to buy 100% renewable. That's 14.5 megawatts. That's 14.5 megawatts that PSC is going to stop producing at Coal Strip and start having to buy out on the open market or produce from their own wind farms. So it's, it's, it's like a little incremental step. We'll get them going that way. And the next step is to help them um, you know, find a replacement for Coal Strip, which is going to be you know, uh, they need to find a replacement for about a gigawatt of uh, supply. Yeah, I mean, and I think that IRP that's coming out September, October will have some bearing on on where this community or certain uh, members of the community start trying to push with respect to our relationship with um, PSC. So let's, you know, move into affordable housing. You mentioned that 40% of the morning traffic on 305 is due to off-island workers commuting the jobs here on Bainbridge. Where did you get that figure? That came from the affordable housing uh, group here on the island. Interesting. And, okay, because I'm thinking about the. It's, uh, go ahead. They might. It might be. Uh, the number might be a little high. I. It might be low. Uh, but it it seems hmm. that uh, you know, a lot of people do travel onto the island to work here. There's a lot of service jobs here, and um, uh, you know the housing is expensive. Can't get around that, and. Um, we haven't talked about the aquifer, but there are limits to our growth. We cannot grow. We cannot just add units, uh, units of housing forever. Um, at some point, we hit the limits of our water supply. So, uh, uh, and unfortunately, that drives the price of housing up. You know, we've discussed in several um, you know, the island power things and, and even just in, in with other candidates about how workers can't afford to live here. And it's not even just the workers. I mean, people think workers and they think of the people in the shops and whatnot. It's like, no, we really law enforcement can't afford to live here. People that are working in our, our mail office can't afford to live here. We have principals and teachers and, and, and school district administrators that can't afford to live here. Um, we have, we've lost some principals that have actually said publicly that the cost of living here was one of the reasons why they moved on. So um, it's interesting um, you had, had expressed, I mean, the typical supply and demand economics that, you know, the way to decrease housing prices is to increase the quantity, which, you know, you said also was not possible with the limited land and water resources. And we'll get back to that water in a few seconds. But um, share your proposal um, from your website about how you believe we can alleviate the issue of affordable housing. I, I think we could add uh, some number of units not many units you know of of uh of housing through the the uh, nonprofit agencies to um uh, add some more housing but it won't be a giant supply that can possibly bend the cost structure and we would take a a doubling of the supply of 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 um units in order to affect the pricing of of houses it's not feasible we, we we really have to work on transportation instead. I I know it's a lousy answer, but uh, we need to provide a way to get people in here to the ferry, into their jobs without having to drive cars. And uh, uh, you know it's 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 crummy answer, but uh, I don't think there's a realistic ability to add you know a thousand new units of of um, of housing here. I don't know if we're going to get. I mean, I know Bainbridge Landing has a, yeah. a project that's coming up there on Fern Cliff, and, and you know, you think about other places like we've talked about on the show uh, with other candidates, San Francisco. They came up with a couple of things um, to deal with their 
situation where they just kind of required um you know, developers to create right. ten or more units right. either pay or, or either pay an affordable housing fee or something like that. But as you said, I mean that's you know, you're you're not gonna get thousands and thousands of units that way to deal with affordable housing. So I mean I thought that your your proposal was intriguing that you work with nonprofits to convert surplus and donated properties into housing, you know, at little I mean it's almost like a habitat for humanity type thing and, and having the city facilitate the construction. Um that that's just a very I wanted to hear more about that and how you saw that working out well, in, in the context of, of what we have here. Well, it's nibbling around the edges. You know, it. Yeah. All we could do, you know, is help reduce the cost to those nonprofits or you know, get them land for for free, get them get them permitting for free, uh, facilitate the per- permitting so they can get construction going. But we we can't really bend the amount of, of units you would have to build to to uh, um, uh, to affect the market. It's The market's too strong. Uh, interest rates are too low. Um, if we were back at you know, Reagan-era interest rates of 8, 12%, eight, uh, this market would be uh, not so hot. So. Yeah, it goes back to what some community members have said, where they think that, you know, we're just never going to be able to induce a developer to invest or build here if they can't make a profit, no matter how much we may say we believe in affordable housing. So so that that that's important. Uh, I guess the the city has tried to induce developers, uh, uh, and, and it's been done in Seattle, where you up, upgrade the zoning, you can add more units if, if those units are, are affordable, and apparently the, the developers here ignore that because it, it's it's easier just to sell high-end uh, condos than it is to uh, uh, try to create a mix of customers. And um, so, um, if that's failed, do you want to do the uh, you know the hammer approach, which is thou shalt include 10% uh, affordable units in your structures? Kevin, you got a yeah. A lot of people. Kevin, you got a good point in that. You may only have so much ability to address demand because there's so much un, uh, what do you call it, unaddressed demand that if you build, say, mm-hmm. you know, 500 affordable units, they would be occupied right away. And then you would be like, well, there's still no more affordable housing because they're all consumed. So um, there is a couple different approaches you can take. First off, I, I do think, Again, I got to think about what's the policy tool a council member who's sitting on city council will have, and that will be the ability to establish policy. I mean, we can't tell builders, um, you know. I guess the way is you you create policies in a way that create carrots for the builders. As I understand it, uh, builders are given a choice to either include more environmental features or affordability, and they always choose environmental. Well, it tells me that the policy is written in such a way that. What we really want is we really want these really environmental high-end units everywhere. And, of course, we're not really addressing the lower end of the more affordable spectrum. And it's not to say that affordable housing can't be environmental. In fact, people living in higher-density units like apartments and in cities have much lower impact on the environment than people living in single-family homes. Okay, So, you know, it gets back to what do people want. And sometimes I think they say they want affordability, but they really don't because they don't want as many people here as, uh, you know, they, they're trying to keep the door closed. So I guess it really comes Raise down the to the council member. Yeah, they're bringing up the drawbridge, and, and it helps them in a way where they can 
claim more value for their house, right? You know, if, if my house is worth eight hundred thousand or my house is worth a million, great for me. But it doesn't mean, but that, but it also has got a negative impact on the community in that the school teacher can't live here, the policeman can't live here, the guy who's the principal of the schools, uh, high school, he leaves citing affordability. That tells you if you've got a huge I know. problem. I talked about you've that. got our priorities yeah. messed up. So, so what I'm saying is. Uh, from a policy point of view, we have to really work with the city manager and the way we set the, the, the policies up to really say, look, we do want more, uh, we, we want more apartments. And then if you can do that, then it's more going to be more affordable housing. There's, another, there's other things, too, about this that I don't even know all the ins and outs of, but there's different types of affordable housing. You can set up policies that say so many of these units will be available longer term at a below market rent or a subsidized rate or something like that. You can tweak these things. It's not necessarily just what's built affordable initially, because then you know affordable might be a four hundred thousand dollar unit, and, and, right. and that's right. maybe what's affordable so, because the, the the offset is six hundred thousand. So, right. So okay. uh, apparently the Ferncliff development that that's written into the into the deeds that those units get sold affordable as well. They were bought affordable. Okay. They're sold affordable. So I, right. I think we can, if we if we do more things like that, plus think innovatively. And again, I think that's the thing that we really have to say is think innovatively. It may not be something that everybody says I want. I mean, they've, they've called grow the grow ghetto, and yet it's very expensive. And it's because people make judgments about what they want. And yet that density is really what's going to drive in other areas you know, enough students getting in if they can afford to live there, you know, more students to be able to uh, live in the district so we're not, you know, building schools and then closing schools. It's kind of the worst-case so, scenario. So, Kevin, yeah, and, and, and you know, there are other solutions, of, you know, the ADUs, people have started bringing that up, and so there's kind of a, I know, a cautionary tale of what happened over in Bremerton recently with that where they just, they've, they're a community that's also been talking about how they want to deal with problems that they have in affordable housing and, in, in, you know, in increasing the collateral of their rental market, and yet their city council had this really strong 4-3 battle where they lost out because they tightened the code and required owners that wanted to rent their second homes or the ADUs that they had to live there year-round instead of six months. And so now, you know, they're not exactly thrilled with the prospect of building extra dwellings or anything because of those requirements. So you have to be really careful when you're running for office and you get elected. You know, there's so many competing interests in this community. I'm curious as to, you know, how you see yourself as kind of bridging those interests to get some things done, Kevin. Um, well, I, I uh, my top issue and in, in the, and the issues page was we're, we are losing the uh, the sense of what Bainbridge was as as we continue to develop the farmland on Bainbridge into housing. It's uh, creeping by year by year. We're losing the rural uh, sense of what the island was. And unfortunately, I I will try to put the foot down and halt the breakup of the farms into one acre lots. That's still going on. Um, and uh, there, there are loopholes that allow developers to chop up lots into small pieces um, uh, or chop up the, the uh, farms into small pieces. And, you know, it's the opposite direction. We, we really need to halt that. Otherwise, this won't be Bainbridge uh, in 20 years. 
Yeah, I saw that you said that. We talked um, about aquifer. Yeah, that too. But you also said that any remaining subdivision developments on Bainbridge um, needed to be concentrated within the designated urban zones and that you wanted us to leave the rural farms intact. But you also said you'd support the elimination of all less than five-acre subdivision loopholes outside of the urban zones. And you, yes. you know, you yeah. you did say you know draw the line. So you would you would actually come out and and try to pass that that initiative with the city council. What do you think the yeah. impact of that would be? I uh, there will be less uh, development revenue for the city uh, funds. We'll have to live right. on a tighter budget. That's the main main impact. We might not need so many employees in the uh, in the uh, planning department. But uh, um, so be it. Otherwise, That's, you know, this will be a, yeah. you know, a, just a plain old suburb uh, 20 years from now, and the you know Winslow area will you know look like Bellevue. That's pretty drastic. I mean, you were allowed to come here, or we were allowed to come here. And now we want to raise the drawbridge. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So. Um, Let's talk about your aquifers because they're related. And we actually, also because okay. we had a conversation, um, we have a neighbor that is also a, an architect, and they're going to be building something in Rolling Bay, but they also just built a private residence. And so the the uh, topic of water and availability in aquifers came up. So um, why don't you talk a bit about what your your thoughts are about water and aquifers and what we need to do. And then, Charles, why don't you jump in right after him since you kind of had a conversation about that. Okay, so... So we we can talk about affordable housing, we can talk about development, uh, ADUs, and all of this, but it all comes to a grand halt if the water supply uh, decays. And I guess the issue that I would like to address is that we need to have a clearer understanding of the state of the aquifer on all ends of the island. And that is a year-by-year analysis of where the aquifer stands, um, and apparently that is not done continuously, and uh, we we don't know whether we're we're you know losing 10 feet in the seabold uh, um, area or not, um, and and so we're we're blind. We're we're handing out building permits. Uh, you just mentioned a couple hundred uh, apartment units in Winslow, but we're blind as to whether there's a water supply for it. And, uh, and so at least I, I would like to get a regime in place that we're uh, continuously, meaning twice a year, go out, monitor the wells all around the island, and produce uh, you know, the data that indicates what our current aquifer levels are at. Charles, do you want to add to that about the uh, tapping into the water supply? Okay. So one of the things I know, like North Madison, they have some shallow wells, but they also have deep wells that tap into an aquifer that actually crosses the Olympics. So not all the water is just sourced here locally. And the other thing I would say is um, if we implement certain policies, yes, I think we could be more efficient in our use of water management. You know, we're talking about the apartment, you know, and how many people are going to be living there. Well, guess what? Those people in apartments use a lot less water than people in houses that water their grass you know, and have huge plantings. So it, it does kind of go back to the characterization or the comment, uh, what do we want Bainbridge to look like in so many years? You know, I mean, are we, is preservation trying to keep it in its exact current state, or do we 
try to evolve the path of growth in a way where you know there's a desirable result. To me, uh, you have to have a certain amount of growth for a community to be vital. If you don't, you can't put it in a box and, and keep it stagnant and then think it'll still be vital. I, I tend to think that systems that aren't growing tend to start decaying pretty quickly. It'll evolve once you know developable land disappears and it's all gone. We might have to adjust the GMA growth boundaries and stuff like that. But again, the water aquifer is a good issue. Uh, we do need to protect our resources. I think sometimes it's used as an argument to say, look, we need to stop all building everywhere. And the reality is there is water resources. We can even tap deep aquifers. So it may not be as limited as we think, but that doesn't mean we should waste. And I think that's where we need to focus. Well, my my point is, we need to understand what their what their state is. What what is mm -hmm. the condition of the aquifers? Are uh, are we need to have the measurements in hand and see what the trending is, uh, uh, you know, over a several year period to be able to say, oh, are we we're 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 pulling too much from it? It's decaying. We're not recharging it well uh, fast enough. Uh, we can't even make those statements today. And we're blindly handing out building permits without the knowledge of whether there will be water there in 20 years. Good, and there's nothing wrong with due diligence. Uh, nothing wrong with due diligence. I agree with you on that, Kevin. And certainly nothing uh, wrong with being proactive and saying, hey, you know, how do we – it makes sense to con try to conserve water wherever possible. It makes sense to try to capture roof water for gardening. It makes sense to capture facilities that recharge the aquifer. Why not? I mean, why act like it's Christmas and then continue to abuse and, and use all of our resources, whether it's water or anything else? It's just part of our, quote-unquote, environmental stewardship and, and the, you know, the, the green – uh, you know, edict that we have here in the community. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, with you making that kind of a statement. Um, I think that sometimes when you say no new build, building permits or things like that, I mean, it kind of scares people because obviously with all these things that keep coming across, you know, our, our, our desk with, you know, bonds and all this other stuff, it, it, this money has to be, um, you know, realized somewhere else. It can't just be taxation. Um, so let's talk about transportation for a second here, um, and, and I, I want to jump into this. We got about five minutes, but I think that's enough. Um, let's talk about your traffic engineering suggestions from the ferry dock to the casino during peak hours. Okay. Um, well, uh, you know, I've been asked, well, what are you going to do about three or five? You know, it's a, it, you know, twice a day. It's this big a lump of traffic sitting there, and um, at a minimum, the state should. Uh, time the lights uh, that, that is uh, they set up what's called a, a, an adaptive uh, system that controls the flow of traffic through the lights so that we're not um, uh, we're not pumping the traffic through the lights you know there's a town in Oregon I remember you drive in from the Oregon coast and there's a sign at the edge of the town that says drive at 24 miles an hour and you'll get green lights and you do hmm. that, and you'll fly through that little town. And uh, the same thing is it ha ha could happen here, which is if you if you drive at the limit, uh, and we have adaptive lights, uh, we could run the flow of traffic through the island much faster than we currently do. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of tr transportation overall, uh, here as you know, as a local and, you know, you want to go to somewhere on the island, you know, there's either you're on a bicycle or you're in a car. Uh, you know, the, the bus system is totally oriented around commuting to the ferry 
and has almost no purpose uh, you know, other than that. You can't go into Winslow, you can't go to the Safeway store without uh, climbing into a, into a car. Um, and I guess my point was, uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now, the, the technology will, will give us uh, self-driving uh, autonomous vehicle, you know, buses that will be looping around the island 24 hours a day, uh, you know, battery powered. Uh, and, uh, but until then, uh, I guess I'd like to put pressure on Kitsap Transit to provide some more bus busing so that we could at least go from our local neighborhoods into uh, Winslow and into uh, uh, the other um, urban areas of the city without having to climb into a vehicle. You know, the the traffic engineering thing is it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's something that everybody does. It's intrinsic to the traffic management, um, you know, equation. And I, you know, back, back in my old other life, I actually used um, – Poisson and Erlang tables and things like that to compute traffic, data traffic, in the same way that, you know, you busy hour, busy day projections or whatever. So it's really your suggestion to do that and tweak that and look at it and, and calibrate it is really, you know, a, a great suggestion. Um, you know, the Kitsap Transit thing let's, is let's go back very to that, interesting. That, that, uh, can I go back to that 40% of, of off-island off traffic is, right. is to people yeah. working on the island? What right. if we had a parking lot up at up at 305 and, and and Highway 3, and a Kitsap Transit buses that came onto the you know came down 305 to the island, but didn't just go to the ferry, but also went to the areas where people work. We could pull a lot of traffic off of off of the uh, um, off of the highway if you know if we had a you know a single bus and a, an area for people to park up at the up at the, Highway Three, we could shed a bunch of cars. You know, simple solution. You know, it, it's interesting. It does sound simple. Of course, there are people that feel like we we need to widen the highway and have bus only lanes and yada yada. And then there's also the thing with kids have transit right now, where their you know their current focus right now is trying to improve the reliability of the Bremerton Fast Ferry. Which, by the way, one of their major pitches was that this was going to alleviate some of the traffic on the 305 corridor because they said a lot of people were trying to come to the Bainbridge Ferry yeah. because it was shorter. So, and that continues to break down. They're pouring more money into it. They had to put their own money into it in the beginning because. They didn't get the funding from outside of the area. So I'm very uh, curious as to how you would influence Kitsap Transit to increase the availability of their bus service here um, when they're dealing with all of those issues. Boy, uh, and and the uh, the fast ferry is, is far from being uh, fossil-free and green because it, nothing well, yeah. consumes more energy <laughs> than a, uh, a planing boat. Um, uh so um how how do we influence um i i guess you know we just like the uh the bridge across 305 we've got to go go get some federal grants to try some ideas out and get them the money from the outside uh we're not going to get them to divert the money from their own budget we're going to have to go help them find it or get it for them and uh uh, to set up some specific service, try something new. Uh, um, uh, and like I said, you know, maybe a few years from now, we'll have autonomous vehicles that won't consume so much labor, and uh, and they'll they'll be able to add a lot more service. 
Yeah, and you know, because I don't think it's going to happen with kids have transit. I think it's a worthy goal. But um, and I, and that's another thing you bring up that we haven't talked about with any of the candidates before. I mean, it, we tend to think about city council in a very insular way, but it really isn't. I mean, you have to sit on kids have transit. Um, you know, you have the KRCC and, and and housing authority. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, roles that uh, city council members have to play outside of just you know focusing on Bainbridge issues. So. Um, you support the need to improve our space for vehicles and bikes and pedestrians. You know, obviously, you talked yeah. about the lack of shoulders yep. and sidewalks. I mean, I mean, those drop-offs are kind of scary. So, you support yep. the um, Sound the Olympics project, correct? Uh, or not really? Not. I, I, the, re- <laughs> okay. the reason it, you know, I, it was kind of like, oh, gee, that's nice. But you know, in all of these years, I think I've only seen one bicyclist on the trail that's currently there, you know, the, the Corten Steel Bridge over the ravine. In all of these years, I've only seen one, one bicyclist using that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, we'll get a lot of usage out of, out of the new trail. Um, and I predicate, you know, that trail getting a lot of usage before, you know, putting money into the, the bridge idea. Um, the... You know, the bicyclists here would, would have much rather had road shoulders than uh, the Olympic Trail. They really, you know, road shoulders, you know, is much more related to safety. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's federal money raining down. So uh, let's see how that works. And, you know, if it's a success, we get a lot of people using it, uh, then you could extend it up the island. But um, if it if it doesn't get a lot of use, then it, you know it's a you know it's a white elephant. I guess we'll see. I mean, I guess there's some way where you have to get these people off of the roads. And if if you got a lot of people, I mean, you go you go look at some place like Friday Harbor, and there, you know, tons of bikes are getting off at that ferry to drive to ride throughout the entire yeah. island and, and yeah. spend their time there. So, I mean, if we can get more commuters that are riding their bikes and they're going straight off the island and they're not in their cars, then yeah, I guess we'll see at some point whether or not that was worth it or whether it's just one of those touristy things, I guess, as you call it, or as some people call right. it. I don't think you called it that. So. <laughs> Just being clear here. I, so you've got about. I, um, I want it to be a success, and uh, so okay. we we need to see. We I I hope it's a a, a success. Put it that way. Um, so you got about uh, twenty seconds here. Can you share your website URL and your Facebook page, or whichever one you think is the best way for people to keep track of what you're doing? It, it's it's federally for bi character for bi. So it's f e t t e r l y character4bi.com. And, uh, you know, if uh, the website lists a phone number, you know, if people want to talk directly about issues, they want to, you know, throw water at my uh, stupid ideas, please give me a call. Uh, give me some input. Uh, I'd appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Uh, no, that's not the right one, guys. Oh, this is just so funny. Okay, here we go. It looks like we got it. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. I appreciate Kevin Federley and Charles for participating today. This podcast is now on our website, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Facebook, obviously, at STR8 Talk Radio. That's STR, the number 8 Talk Radio. Signing off here at about 59 on Wednesday, August 9th. 
And we'll see you tomorrow, same time, with a Dreamweaver series guest, which is going to Alchemist Apothecary Company. See you next time.